I want to begin, begin this morning with a very simple question. Have you ever found yourself in a dark place? Have you ever found yourself struggling to believe in the promises of God? Or maybe even in the goodness of God? Because of the darkness of your circumstance, you struggle. Well, today I want to talk to you about trusting God in dark and, as it says, uncertain times. We're continuing a chronological study of the Bible. We've just walked through from Genesis to the place where we are now in the time of the exile where God's people have been carried away. If you've not been with us, the, the, the context is pretty easy to follow. God has called one particular people that would bless all the other people of all of the world. And their story of obedience and disobedience really gives to us a picture of two ways to live. We can trust God and follow Him and be blessed, or we can find ourselves disobeying Him and in our disobedience facing consequences. And that's what's happening here. In fact, I want to make sure that you see something very, very clearly. As we read through the Old Testament, to understand the Old Testament, you need to understand two things. You need to understand the storyline and the plot line, if you will. The storyline and the plot line. And as you look at these two things, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, the storyline is just the factual information of what's happening. But the plot line is the deeper theological significance. It's the the meaning, the substance of what's happening. And as we look today at this story, the storyline will tell, but I want us to draw out some significant meaning. Because what I want to do today, very simply, is to take you to a passage of Scripture where you'll see a clear indication of both, storyline and plot line. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. As you're turning there, let me speak to this psalm because this one is tough. There are some psalms that we look at and and they give us a good feeling of worship. They take us to an encouraging place where the Lord is blessing, but this one is different. In fact, this one fits into a group of psalms that are different. There is a phrase that we're going to read in a moment that we kind of gravitate toward that just causes us a little bit of heartburn. It's a place where we cringe a little bit. Let me, let me say it this way. Is hopefully you found Psalm 137, and once you've gotten there, look back this way. I want to say this about this psalm. This psalm is challenging. It is at some levels offensive. It is violent. And so now I may have your attention. You're going, what in the world is our pastor talking about? Well, it's in the Bible. And so it's important for us to look at the whole counsel of God, and it fits into the storyline that we've been reading. But it seems to go against everything that we know about what God would want us to to think about other people, the attitude and the, the treatment of other people. And you need to know this right off the bat. You need to just remember, as we read this psalm, it was written by people who were marked by pain and regret and even revenge they're in a dark place and so if you answered that question at the beginning yeah pastor I've been in dark places before and I've struggled before well maybe this morning you've come to the right place and you can begin to put some things in perspective look with me if you will at Psalm 137 we'll begin in verse 1 beside the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem 
We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. It literally says, let it forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. And now look at verse 9. Happy is the one who takes your infants, your babies, and smashes them against the rocks. This is the word of the Lord in our hearing. There have been people who have taken this, skeptics who have taken this very verse, and they've used it to try to prove, look, the Bible is a place of terrible morals and terrible ethics of Scripture. And skeptics would use this to argue against the goodness of our God. And they would say, how in the world could God be good and include such a verse as this one? But church family, I want to say to you that we need to consider this prayerfully. We need to consider it carefully and specifically for ourselves, our understanding of God, but also so that we might be able to refute a skeptic who would take God's word out of context and somehow miss the point. This psalm fits into a category of psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. And that's our, that's our word for the day, all right? I want you to use it in a sentence this week. Everybody say the word imprecatory with me. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Imprecatory. What does that word mean? What does imprecatory bring to mind? Well, it's calling down judgment or praying judgment on or revenge toward our enemies. And so they're praying, God, do this to the Babylonians. Do this to our enemies. I'm asking God to judge somebody else. This is not the longest of all the imprecatory psalms, but it probably is the most intense. I mean, if you look at those words and, and consider the, the request the people are making of God, th then you'll begin to scratch your head and wonder, unless you read it in context. So my, my intent for us this morning is to read it in context. I want to give you three quick thoughts. The first one is the context. So if you're taking notes, jot that down. And look back with me at verse 1. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat down. And what were they doing? Help me out. They wept as they thought of Jerusalem. So they're riding in a time where they're sitting by the river. Where? Help me out. In Babylon. So we know that this is not a psalm of David. You remember, David wrote a lot of the psalms, but he reigned in Jerusalem and in Israel around 1000 B.C. Well, this is about 400 years later because the people are not in Babylon in the time of David. We do know that in 586 B.C. that King Nebuchadnezzar from the east of the Babylonians laid siege on Jerusalem. He starved the people out for about 18 months. He broke into the city. They finally breached the walls. They burned it to the ground. They took all of the beauty of 
of the instruments, the gold and, and the other things that were used in worship of Yahweh in the temple. And they stole those. They ransacked all of those. They killed almost everybody in the city as they, they destroyed the city and they burned it down and tore the walls down. Anybody that they left alive, they shackled and they drugged them back all the way across the Fertile Crescent, 700 miles to Babylon. This psalm is being written in that time period, not during the time of David. It's 400 years later when Israel has gone to Babylon. Now, it's interesting, from David's time until this time, we would call this the time of the kings and the time of the divided kingdom. And we've been studying that, but there were 39 kings that reigned Israel and Judah during that time. And there were only eight that were good. Over and over again, the people thumbed their noses at God, they ignored God's commands, they did their own thing, they decided what was right and wrong in their own eyes, and they spurned the law of God. And God during this whole time would send prophets, and these prophets would speak out against their evil and warn them and tell them judgment will come if you do not repent. And over and over again, they gave clear predictions of doom, and yet the people of God continued to run away from God for 400 years. And finally, the enemy swept in, and again, anyone they didn't kill, they dragged back to Babylon. They, they pulled them through Syria and Jordan, through Iran, uh, Iran and to modern-day Iraq. In fact, just for kind of context sake, about 55 miles from the modern-day city that we understand as Baghdad, it was the city of Babylon. So we're talking about modern-day Iraq, and this is a psalm of the POW. They said, we sat on the side of the riverbanks in Babylon and we wept. They're mourning. Their hearts are heavy. They're grieving. They, they've taken their harps and they've just hung them on the willow trees, probably beside the Euphrates River. They're in Babylon. Everything that they knew and loved was far away in Jerusalem, but even there it had been reduced to rubble and ashes. I want you to see, though, that the macabre part of this psalm is not in verse 9. As much as it is the context in verses 1 through 3. We read this psalm and we gravitate toward 9 and say, How in the world could they pray that God would take the babies of the enemy and kill them? How, how in the world could they do that? But let's read this together again starting in verse 1. Not all of it, but think through what's happening. So, beside the rivers of Babylon. Remember that Babylon was the destroyer of Israel. Everybody say destroyer. They were the destroyer of Israel. So we sat there in this country and we wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put our harps away, hanging them on branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors, literally the word is mockers, insisted on a joyful hymn. This is a horrific picture. Don't run past it to verse 9 and, and blame them for what they pray. Think about this. You've been taken away from your homeland. You've been starved out for 18 months. An enemy entered the city, they sieged it, slaughtered the people, burned it to the ground, took the rest captive, marched us all the way across the 700 miles, and in doing so, then they begin to torment us and say, say, why don't you sing us a song? This is the equivalent, and I don't want to be insensitive, but this would be the equivalent of a Nazi guard at Dachau with a machine gun looking at those Jews who are only feet away from, in that concentration camp, only feet away from the gas chamber and say, hey, why don't you sing me a Hanukkah song? They're mocking them. 
And you say, how in the world could they be reduced to such anger? Just imagine if they're thinking about their own children who have been slaughtered at the hands of the Babylonians, and their mockers are now saying, hey, why don't you sing happy birthday to your kids? Hello? How about this? They have, they have murdered or, and even plundered your spouse. And then they say, hey, did you ever write your, your spouse a love letter? Why don't you read that for us right now? Sing us a happy song. Do a little dance. They were wanting entertainment from these prisoners of war on the side of the river. And they hung their harps on the sides of those willows. And they cried out to God because they said, we are in such a dark place. How do we even trust God here? And so for me, when I read their response, it makes a little more sense that they would say to God, hey, God, why don't you do to them what they've just done to us? Still hard to reconcile. Still hard to put together, but we need to consider this. It, this is such a sick scene of cruelty. Their captors demanding entertainment. They're expecting joy from these people whose lives have been destroyed. There were two deep and dark Periods of time in the life of Israel, 400 years in slavery in Egypt, and now 70 years of captivity here in Babylon. Intense season of pain, but how do you respond to the, I mean, they've been through pain before. How do you respond to these taunts? Look at verse 4. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? This may be the fundamental question in this psalm for you and me today. That's a, a deep theological question. How can I continue to sing songs of faith in the middle of darkness? Songs in the middle of the night. Immediately when I read chapter, uh, the, excuse me, verse 4, I immediately thought of Paul and Silas in prison at midnight. Not crying out, oh God, open up the gates, but just singing praises to the Lord. And it's as if the, the, the chains not on their physical bodies fell, but they, they would eventually, but the chains on their souls fell. They said, even in prison, we can sing praises to our God because He's worthy. Some of you in the middle of pain need to just take that as a word from the Lord that you can praise God through your pain, and as you do, He can bring you out of the darkness into hope. The question is, can I still trust God in times of suffering? God had given Abraham 1,400 years before promises. Those promises look like this. I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants will be as many as the sands on the seashore. And I'm going to give you a land where those descendants can live. And I'm going to bless every nation through your descendants. And now we're sitting on the side of the riverbank in Babylon being mocked, ridiculed, and tormented after our whole world has been shattered. And we're saying, God, your promises, I don't know that hold true anymore. What you told Abraham doesn't look like it's happening right now. We're not in that land. We're in this land. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a pagan land? Your promises are just not coming true. Continue with me, if you will, in the text. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. Can, can you feel the emotion? Can, can you get the ethos of where they are? I mean, there is such depression, such ache. Jerusalem represented all of those promises of God and, and coming true 
it, it seems like was impossible. How can God, who's not given us this place, this land anymore, it's been taken from us, we're regretting and weeping and remembering. I, I want you to see some nuance to this. Though. They're not just angry at the Babylonians. Their hearts are filled not just with depression and despair, but regret. And so that may be a question for you. You know, part of their pain, let me put that on the screen, part of their pain is deep regrets. Part of their pain is that they know that they left the Lord, that they've wandered away from the Lord, that they caused some of it. I, I don't know about you, probably not, maybe a few of you, but I can say with great uncertainty and, I mean, with great certainty and clarity, I have done some stupid things in my life. Anybody else identify with me? There's my people group. Thank you. I'm so glad that you have honestly admitted that. I have done stupid aggressively. I have done stupid with zeros on the end. And, and there are times when you come to a consequence and, and you can blame somebody else and it still hurts, but there's something deep when I know that I caused the pain. Anybody ever felt regret? Where you knew you did it to yourself. And here they are. And guess what? Why are we here? Why was our family killed? Why was the city destroyed? Why have we been dragged away in chains? I mean, brutalized. I don't want you to minimize this. And yet, in pleasant company and even with children present, I, I can't even read to you Lamentations 2 in this service. You go back and look at what happened as they were starving to death inside the city. You go back and look at how brutal the Babylonians were. You go back and look at all that happened to them and you stop and you go, this is a mess. But they realize they did it to themselves. You know, there are people in our culture that do some really dumb things. I, I read not long ago uh, about a man, let me pull up his name just for posterity's sake. Uh, his name is Todd Fassler. You don't need to necessarily know that. Todd is from San Diego, California. Todd spent a month and a half in the hospital recently because he was bitten by a rattlesnake. Now, some of you immediately, like me, cringe back a little bit. I, I, the only good snake is a dead snake, and they're not that good either. I just don't like snakes. If you have a problem with that and you like them and think they're cute and cuddly, then write Scott Alexander. Don't send emails to me. I don't like snakes, okay? I'm not saying he does either, but just send your letters to him. I don't want to hear your complaints about snakes. You know what Todd Fassler was doing? He wanted to get a selfie with a rattlesnake. Yeah, exactly. So he decided he would pick it up and take a selfie. And while he was taking the selfie, the snake bit him in the arm. $153,000 of medical bills later, he said, that was probably a stupid thing to do. You think? I read this week about a bank robber who decided last minute he was going to rob the bank, but he decided to case the joint first. And instead of casing it a week before or a month before, he said, I'm going to walk in and pretend to be a customer and open up an account. And while he was opening up a checking account, they asked him for two forms of ID, and he gave them to them. And then decided in a moment of clarity, I think I'm going to rob the bank. They've got his name and his address and his social security number, and they followed him home with the cash, which, by the way, had already had exploding dye fill up his car. So they found him in a state of green <laughs> at home right where he had 
left the address. People do some dumb things. Part of their pain is deep regret. We are here because we have done this to ourselves. And have you ever said, I can't believe I did that? And we joke about it, but there are some deep-rooted things. You, you, you think about this. We make decisions and then live with the consequences for years. Maybe today, and maybe nobody knows it, maybe you're an alcoholic. Maybe you're on prescription medicine and it doesn't even belong to you. And you go, I cannot believe I've gotten to this place. Maybe you cheated on your spouse. Maybe you've gotten to the place where your anger is so out of control, you're driving everybody in your life away from you. You've made decisions and the consequences are following. Maybe you're in a place where it wasn't your fault but somebody else's fault. There's an element of that here. Obviously Babylon comes in. Maybe it's just that you're living in the consequences of a sin-sick world. Maybe the enemy that you're fighting today is a tumor. And there's disease and there's all kinds of issue that happens because of this broken world we live in. Not necessarily because of your sin or your choices. But what I'm telling you is there will be dark days. We live in a world that is filled with darkness. And at times because of your action or the actions of somebody else, you'll find yourself facing a dark enemy. And when you do, sometimes emotions are going to spill out. That's what happens here. But I wanted to go all the way through that background because I wanted you to see, again, the macabre part of this, the disturbing part of this to me, is not necessarily verses 8 and 9. It's the whole situation. We understand the context now. And so as we understand the context, that takes us to the controversy. Write that down. What is the controversy? Well, look at verses 7, 8, and 9 with me. Verse 7, O Lord, remember when the Edomites... What the Edomites did the days the army of, uh, armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. Think about this. The enemies of God are sitting on the sideline. The Edomites had long been hated. They were, they were descendants of Esau. And these Edomites said, burn it to the ground. Kill them all. That's what they did. They cheered it on. Your loved ones are being killed. Rape, pillage, and plunder. And there's somebody else that's crying out, kill them all, burn it down, take them away. These enemies of the people of God that are crying out lead to the people of God crying out and saying, God, remember this. Remember what they did. Not just what they said, but what they, or not just what they did, but what they said. They left such horrible carnage. They did unspeakable things. Our city that took centuries to build was torn down in hours. There's intense anger welling up in the people of God after what they saw happen to their wives and husbands and parents and cousins and friends. So in the middle of their pain and their grief and their loss and their memories and the taunting of their mockers, we get to verse 8 and 9. Read with me there. Look at it. Oh, Babylon, you will be destroyed. They're saying there's coming a day and you're going to get what's coming to you. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you've done for us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. I, I almost envision it this way. My harp is hung up, and these cruel tormentors are laughing and mocking and jeering and spitting and saying, sing me a happy song now. Okay, you want a happy song? And they grabbed their harps down and said, you're going to be destroyed. 
And when you are, I'm going to be happy. We're going to be happy. I, I just envision there's a language barrier here. You've got Babylonians and Hebrews, and they're in that place. They're saying, you want a happy song? I'll sing you a happy song. God's going to strike you down. He's going to take the infants of all of your future generations, and he's going to crush you. There's your happy song. You like that, mocker? I mean, can you see the anger and the vitriol? And I don't want to make light of it at all. It's such an intense thing. This is tough. I, I told you, this isn't, this isn't easy. Following Christ means that we've got to think through some things. The controversy is, are these imprecatory prayers, right? Why would God allow that? But remembering the context, you know, if someone had tortured your spouse to death and poked you to read that love letter, what would you pray? Killing the children of your enemies was a common practice in the ancient Near East, even in barbaric ways, but it's not common when it comes home to you and your city, to your kids. I want you to see that this is more of a prophecy than a prayer. They're saying God is going one day to do this. And how did they know that? Because Jeremiah, who was back in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel, who was by the Kibar River, were preaching the same message. They were saying, you're going to be here for 70 years, but God's going to return you. God's going to overthrow Babylon, and you will be returned. That prophecy that is given is that a day is coming, Babylon, you're going to get yours. In 1962, Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi Holocaust leader, was found in hiding and put on trial. And the newspaper shared part of the story that a man burst into the courtroom right in the middle of the trial. And he said these words, let me get my hands on that Nazi pig for 60 seconds. Let me have him that I may torture him with my own hands. The people in the press were sympathetic with this man's cry. I'm not saying that their prayer of imprecatory nature is right. And as we look at it, the same is true here that we can understand a little bit of them wanting to vent, of them wanting to be angry. We see their outrage and we understand it as somewhat normal, at least from a human vantage point. But, but here's the deal. If that's the controversy, so the context is they're in this place of torment and they cry out and say, God, get them. What's the connection? And I want everybody to lean in really close for the next few minutes and think about this with me. What does that have to do with this? What does that have to do with us? What do they have to do with me? I'm glad you asked. I want to give you some points of application. What are we supposed to do with this? Two or three thoughts. Number one, this passage leaves room for our honesty. This passage leaves room for our honesty. When you're grieving and you're hurting, you can cry out to God, and God has big enough shoulders to listen. He, he can hear your cries. He understands your pain. In fact, far more than you can imagine, He allowed His Son to come and be tortured and to be killed on our behalf and this gives us a place where I ought to say this morning God thank you that I can express raw emotion with you when your heart is broken and your world is in turmoil I, I would say this that I can turn to God and I can express my heart to him it made it into the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and God will allow us to be raw 
I, I want to say a word on the other side. Maybe, just maybe, we need to be a little slower to judge people who are in the middle of their grief. They, they may be off base, but we, we, we just need to be tender with people. And we need to walk with them in their hurt so that we can lead them to truth. And I, I don't want to just leave it here and say, my pastor told me that if I'm in a, a bad place or if I get hurt, that I can lash out at people. No, that's not what I'm saying. You can cry out to God. You see, they, this is what we see. These are words written to God, songs that they would sing to remember that time. Be careful not to be too quick to judge people in their grief. Number two, I want you to see this. It's okay to pray this way. Now, pastor, you just told me it's not. Well, let's think about it. Why is it okay to pray like this? Because God can handle your pain and your raw emotion and your grief and even your desire for violent revenge. Now, you need to repent and turn through from there. But here in your anger, pray it out loud, but then let it go. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And it's important for you to see this. If I follow that kind of praying, I'm aligning myself with what Jesus told me to pray. What did Jesus say? When you pray, God, you pray these words to God, your heavenly Father. Your kingdom and your will be done. Was it God's will that the Babylonians do all of the despicable things? No, God allowed those things to happen. But God will judge every sin. And every sin will either be judged out of our own lives or on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you asked him to place his payment on your account. This is something fascinating that you and I need to see. We need to agree with God's righteousness and his judgment. You know, we need to come to the place where we understand Babylon ultimately does get destroyed. And those who have never trusted Jesus Christ will spend eternity separated from God. And you and I need to live our lives now telling everybody you don't have to. And that aligns us with that place. So don't pray imprecatory prayers this week when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Okay? Students, don't be praying prayers of judgment down on your teachers. Okay? Don't do that. But pray to God that righteousness would reign and that righteous judgment would come in his timing and that we would be obedient and that we would lead others to obey him. You see, the example of Israel was an example for all to see that God would say, if you'll follow me by faith, you'll be blessed. A couple of interesting things here. Jeremiah told them to pray good things for the people. He said, while you're there, pray for their welfare of the city. Pray that God would bless them. It, it begins to show us the picture. And so when we pray this kind of a prayer, when we look at that kind of a prophecy, what we need to do is say, God, I, I want you to give them what they deserve. But when I pray that way, I've got a rock in my hand, and I'm saying, God, what do I deserve? One thing you need to see is that there's no possible full understanding of what God's future plan was in Israel. You need to hear this. I love this. I'm going to put it on the screen. In 586 B.C., Israel had no idea what was coming in 30 A.D. You're saying, Pastor, what are you talking about? They had no full comprehension that Jesus Christ would bear all of the righteous wrath, even that they deserved. And so in their praying that hundreds of years before Jesus would come, they're saying, in our estimation, in our understanding, God, get them. 
And what they're doing is they're praying to have judgment on themselves. It's kind of interesting to me. All they knew was what I call the cycle of repeated violence. You and I know that. Me and my family members have experienced that. You and your siblings have. Anybody ever been here? Mom, it all started when he hit me back. Right? The cycle of repeated violence. Somebody does me wrong and I'm going to repay the favor. That's what they understood. Look at this. A sheep herder says, I'm going to graze my sheep on that man's pasture. And that sheep herder says, oh yeah, well I'm going to take some of his sheep. I'm going to take two of them. And this sheep herder says, oh yeah, well I'm going to take five of his sheep. And that sheep herder says, well I'm going to kill ten of his sheep. And the problem's going to continue to escalate until one or the other is eliminated and they can no longer make this violent cycle continue, or one of them decides, I'll receive the pain myself, I'll extend forgiveness, I will not seek revenge, I'll take the loss. There are some of you in this room that are playing judge. You think somehow because you've been offended, you can just hold it over somebody else, and you need to let that go. You see, here's what God said. God said, I'm going to end this cycle. I'm going to put it to an end. In fact, I'll take the brunt myself. And his son went to a rock. What did they pray? I pray, happy is the one who takes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Well, guess what God did? God allowed his own son to go to a rock called Golgotha. And there his body was crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed. By his shed blood on the cross, God said, I'll take the pain and I'll end the cycle. And you come to me and you can be set free. Amen. He knows that death on the cross. Think about this. All the pain and the wickedness and the violence would be placed upon Jesus. The punishment was put on him and he would bear it. How could the Father watch this? How could God the Father, knowing what we've done to him, how could he allow his son to take that on? You see, our natural tendency is to take vengeance. But God alone has the right to avenge. So his son who is being mocked and beaten, he could have called down all of the angels and wiped them out immediately. And been totally justified in doing so. But because of his great grace and his great mercy and his great love. You see, he understands all the implications. He knew that the cross would change everything. It would bring justice for wrongdoing and good triumphing over evil. And forgiveness being poured out and hope being added. He takes on all the sin and the guilt and the atrocity upon himself. And he died and on the third day he rose. And in one weekend evil is defeated. Forgiveness is offered and eternal life is assured. And for you and for me there's good news today. This is where the connection comes in. The good news is he wants to set you free. Some of you have raised your hands and said, I've been in dark places. Some of you this morning have raised your hands and said, I've felt regret. Some of you have, have acknowledged you've had a sense of wanting revenge. Let it go. Turn it over to the Lord. He will set you free. Here, here's what you do when you come to that place and you say, I want to get them back. I, I want revenge. Here's what I would say to you. You go before God and say, God, look at what they did to me. I want revenge. He'll say, oh, my son has already taken that blow. 
He's already taken those things. He wants to free you from your revenge, from your regret, from your guilt, from your shame, from the evil that you've caused and from the stupid things that you've done. My son already paid for that. Give it to him. You don't have to live with that shame and that guilt and that bitterness. Today you can be set free from where you are. Release them. Trust him. He loves you that much. You can bring your brokenness to him and he'll give you hope and healing. You never thought you would see the gospel in a prayer for God to judge somebody else. But it's all over these words. Do I still have trouble with Psalm 137.9? Struggle. Is it easy to comprehend how somebody could get there? Yeah. Is it unbelievable that God would put it in there? Yeah. But it's even more unbelievable that the God of the universe would take on human flesh and empty himself of all the glory of heaven and come to bear our sin and to die on a rugged, cruel cross on our behalf and rise victoriously and offer to us sinful people, not after we cleaned up, not after we apologized, while we were still mocking, while we were still on the side of that river saying, this is what you should do. Telling God how we didn't want to follow him. And he's saying all the while, I love you. Give it to me. Today you can be saved. You can be set free. Some of you that are saved need to let go of some things. You need to trust God. And and I promise you, as you do, he'll set you free. From those places in your heart where you're harboring ill will. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. And I want you to let God have his way. Our instrumentalists are coming. It may be that you need to come to the altar and pray. It may be that you need to go to someone and ask for or extend forgiveness. It may mean today that you need for the very first time to go to God and ask for forgiveness. To say, Lord, I need your salvation. If that's the need of your life, our staff members are going to be here at the front. We're, we're just serving in the role of prayer partners. We've got other members of our church. They'd love to just sit down and talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, to have eternal life. And if that's the need of your life, when we sing, as soon as we start singing, I want you to step out from where you are and come and take one of these folks by the hand. Come and see me, and we'll connect you with one of them, and they'll share with you. Maybe you need to join this church. We would love for you to be a part. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing, and then you respond. God, thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for the hope that is found because Jesus Christ was dashed upon the rock because he died on a cross, shedding his blood, giving his life so that we could have eternal life. Have your way in this place even now in Jesus' name.